following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. And for, for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, open our Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Let's go there. Hey, believe it or not, we are in our final sermon in 1 Corinthians. Um, I know. It's been really good. Um, beginning November 28th, we're going to start an Advent series. Um, and then next year, we're going to launch into uh, several things. It's going to be a great year next year. We're going to end the year next year by uh, 12 sermons, one each out of the minor. Um, but let's finish up 1 Corinthians. You know, it's interesting. This is our 47th sermon in this book. And it's been a great study for our church. Now, I, I look back just to kind of get my bearings about when we started because um, I had a feeling of what we did. We started this series the very first Sunday of 2020. And little did we know how relevant this book would be for us as a church. Because of what we faced over the last two years. The last two years, we have watched as our world has become more divided and chaotic. From COVID-19 pandemic to government mandates about masks and vaccines to racial tensions... And to top it off, this thought, uh, maybe because you're already into the new year, but it was probably the most contested and vicious election in my lifetime. And by God's kindness, in his sovereignty, God had us study during this season the book of 1 Corinthians. This is why I'm a fan of expositional preaching. What expositional preaching does is it puts you on God's timetable, not yours. And so little would we have known in January of 2020 that we're about to enter one of the most divisive and chaotic times of our, of our world. And we'd be reading about the most divided and chaotic church in the new Testament and learning how to not do what they've done. And here's the main thing that we've learned. And it's also the big idea for today's sermon. If you, if you're new with us, you should have got an outline on the top of the outline. There's always usually a big idea. And here's the big idea. And this is really, if you're summarizing the book of 1 Corinthians, here's basically a summary. Love for Christ and love for God's people is the antidote to division in the church. Love for Christ and love for God's people is the antidote for division in the church. You know, 1 Corinthians is a letter that's divided into five subsections where Paul addresses each area of division. Chapters 1 through 4 was about this church's fight about leaders. They believed that it was godly and right, certain leaders, and to brag about which leader they thought was the best. So you you can almost visualize this a little bit, you know, using a metaphor, they're kind of holding up banners that have names. You know, Paul the Apostle, Peter the Lionhearted, Apollos the Great Preacher, and they're all lined up, and they kind of point fingers back and forth at one another for following these particular leaders. And Paul wrote to them about that. In chapters 5 through 7... It was about the church's division and confusion over marriage, morality, and singleness. This church allowed some of the most grotesque immorality to go unchallenged in their church, and they were not representing Jesus very well in their marriages and their relationship to the outside world. And Paul says that what we do with our bodies as Christians matters to God because God purchased us with his own, the blood of his own son, Jesus. We're to glorify God with our bodies because we are bought with a price. And then in chapters 8 through 10, they were fighting over an issue of food 
And what maybe some of you now understand is what are consciences? We hadn't talked about conscience issues for about five to seven years in our church. And yet here we are face to face in 2020 about what are conscience issues and what should I obey or not obey? And how do I walk this out to honor the Lord? Well, the Corinthians were doing the same thing. Only their issue was the eating of meat sacrificed to idols at the local idol temple. Some thought you could do that. They were free to do it. Others thought Christians should not eat this kind of meat. And what was crazy was in their church, if people thought they could do it, they were flaunting that freedom in front of those who didn't believe they could do it. And those who didn't believe they could do it were judging those who did do it. So they had fights about issues of conscience. And then in chapters 11 through 14, they fought about spiritual gifts. They wanted to show how cool they were by using extravagant gifts in the church service, it was a battle for prominence and prestige. They, they literally would just have random sessions of people speaking up. It was like, you know, my Southern Baptist days growing up, we would have these testimony nights and talking about, and afterward, there would always be a moment in the testimony time when it suddenly went out of, let's just really show the testimony to somebody topping the testimony. We called that the top that testimony moment. And you could feel it. Now somebody's going to share a testimony about their marriage and somebody else is going to share a testimony about how great their marriage is and better than that testimony. And it's just this constant thing. Well, imagine that on steroids using all the various spiritual gifts that are listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14. They saw this as competition. They saw it as a way to gain prestige and influence in their church. And then finally in chapter 15, <clears throat> there were some who didn't believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead. And Paul's concern, if there's no resurrection of the dead, that means that Jesus has not been raised. That would mean we as Christians have lost everything. But what he showed us was, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And since he's been raised from the dead, our resurrection of the dead is our great hope as Christians while living in a world that is ravaged under the curse of sin. Since Christ has victory over the grave, so will we. What great news that is. As Dave Rubel put it last week, we will get our retro-modified bodies. I mean, isn't that a great picture? I mean, I've thought about that all week long. After I got doing a couple workouts, and I was like, Lord, one day I will not have this soreness because I have a retro-mod body. What will that look like, right? That's an amazing thought. Now, what's intriguing about the book of 1 Corinthians, and I hope you've caught this as we've gone through it, is it's, it's written to the most divided church in the Bible, yet in this book is the greatest chapter on love ever written. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's, it's the greatest treatise on love ever written. And this is really important to the study of 1 Corinthians. See, the antidote for division in the church is Christ-like love that is taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's love for God. It is a belief. God is at work in his people through the power of his grace and his Holy Spirit. That God has gifted his people in unique and wonderful ways to work together in one in the body of Christ. And that God's people matter to God. And therefore, they should matter to us. See, interestingly about this book, is there's only one theological issue addressed in the book. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, or chapter 15, about the resurrection. Everything else is relational. 
In other words, this means the Corinthians did not have a theological problem. They had a love problem. And only the power of Christ can change that issue in a people. Now, CLF, this is where we learned a lot. Because by God's grace, we do not have a theological issue in our church. We, it is amazing to me the moment we say, open your Bibles. That to me is the most holy moment in the service. And to hear the amount of pages opening. If I were to get with many of you, you could debate all the doctrines of the faith. You could share how somebody could become a believer. You can talk about what marriage is to represent. You have a theological and a foundation in the God that is solid. We don't have a theological issue. And by God's grace, we currently don't have a love problem. But what 1 Corinthians has done for us, it just made us realize that we should never stop seeking to abound all the more, day after day, year after year, in the work of love. This book has taught us to never lose sight, never lose sight of our need for the power of Christ and the humility and dependence that that understanding brings to us as we interact with one another in the church. So it's with that, that's what we're going to see in Paul's final instructions in 1 Corinthians 16. And again, we're going to see the big idea. Love for Christ and love for God's people is the antidote to division in the church. So let's stand together. We're going to read just five verses found in this chapter. We're going to read verses 13 and 14, and then we're going to read, skip down and read verses 22 through 24. <clears throat> we stand here because we believe this is God's word We're humbled that God would give it to us. It's God-breathed and inspired. This is the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now skip down to verse 22 with me. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that your word is good. And we, your people, want to submit our hearts to your word this morning. So, Father, would you, would you open the eyes of our hearts to help us see areas where we can be encouraged and areas that we need to be exhorted? Would we see, most of all, the wonder of the gospel And how that connects to our unity as a church. And how we live life with one another. And then, Father, would you as well just help us see our need for your power to work within us. And, Father, may this be used for the good of your people. And most importantly, for the glory of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, as you've got your outline out, probably already, we've already done the overview of 1 Corinthians. Let's look at love as the conclusion. Notice verses 13 and 14 with me when Paul wrote, Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, if you were to just pull out your Bible and read 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14 will stand out to you, but they'll almost feel like a throw-in. 
You'll read these stories or these examples or these things that Paul's talking about, these commands that he's giving, and then suddenly throws in verses 13 and 14. But let me just show you this morning that I don't think that these are throw-ins. These are actually concluding thoughts that Paul has for everything he has written to the Corinthian church. And these verses seem to be like a hinge that opened the rest of 1 Corinthians 16. You're going to notice this as we go. Notice what Paul says to them. He told them to be watchful. This means to be diligent or to guard against the division and the sinful tendencies that he's already written about in the book. Now, this is important because as you've heard me say before from this pulpit often, and we will continue to think this way, Lord willing, every church, ours in particular, is always one Sunday away from a church split. The reason for that is we all have sinful tendencies, including your pastor and your elders. We're always one Sunday away. So Paul would say, be be diligent to guard against the very issues that are in the book. But then he also tells them to stand firm in the faith, namely stand firm in the gospel that he had taught them. And so clearly reminded them throughout the book. This book is filled with gospel teaching and instruction and application. And the gospel being the truth that Jesus Christ lived in our place, died in our place, rose again from the dead, and is now seated at the right hand of God. And what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians is fascinating. He takes the gospel and he applies the gospel to very practical issues in the church to help protect vision. And then he tells them to act like men and be strong. Now, what's fascinating about this language in the Greek is it is in the masculine form. So we can't neglect that. But it's really about Paul challenging them to stop acting like immature children who argued all the time about what was popular, who was cool, who was influence, who influencers, who were the haves, who were the have-nots, and start acting like mature adults who stood for the gospel and for one another. The reason being, mature people fend off division in the local church. Listen, friends at CLF, over 2020, you all would not be here. We would have been divided. But then he wraps it all up in verse 14 when he says this, let all, let all you do be done in love. Now this this seems to be Paul's like wrap up to all that he has said. Gordon Fee, I think, put it the best and there's no reason to even add to it. But here's what Gordon Fee said about this verse. All things would include the quarrels in the name of leaders, their attitude toward him, the Apostle Paul, the lawsuits, husband-wife relationships, the abuse of the weak by those with knowledge, the abuse of the have-nots, and the failure to edify the church in worship. If they were to do all things, other things would not be happening. It is therefore no surprise that this is the final expression of advice in the letter. You can see why I would say love is the conclusion to all that Paul has written. Now, when you take verses 13 and 14 and this idea of love and you overlay it onto chapter 16, you're going to find something fascinating. You're going to find Paul taking 13 and 14 and saying, let me show you how this is lived out in the church. 
So notice this as we go to the next part of our notes, which will give you five lived out. You'll notice in verses one through four, we see that love is willing to help those in need. See, the Corinthians, along with the New Testament churches, knew that the Corinthian brothers and sisters at this time were going through a famine. They were having incredible hardship. And Paul's instruction to them and other churches was each Sunday at your home, when the day you got paid, set aside a little bit of your earnings to prepare to give an offering to the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And when Paul then showed back up in Corinth or these various cities, he would take that offering that they've already had set aside and they would give it to the church and went to Jerusalem. Now what you notice is this, love is willing to act this way. See, love for God, love for God's people motivates us to share our wealth with those who have true need. Love like this, that's willing to share our possessions with others for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of their need, it shows a greedy world that Christ is not what's in our bank account. Now this is opposed to what the Corinthians were doing. The Corinthians' attitude toward the less fortunate was awful. They were divided over socioeconomics, over spiritual gifts, and over influence. Matter of fact, when they came together, they made the poor sit out in the foyer. And the rich would have the prominent seats in the church. Yet Paul tells them that that's not, that's not the way you live. Let me, let me show you how not to divide the church. It's by being willing. Love is willing to help those in need. Set aside something of your, of your portion to help those in Jerusalem. And implied is help those around you. But notice verses 5 and 6 and verses 10 and 11. Paul tells them that love is eager to encourage and care for leaders. Listen, the Corinthian church, as we've studied this, was really hard on the Apostle Paul. They treated him terribly. They questioned his apostolic calling. They belittled him with names that throughout the study, to be honest with you, I have not said them in our company because they're so terrible to sound. In the Greek, there's language that's used that we wouldn't even hardly use here. And Paul used them as a rebuttal to some of his arguments. They didn't want to submit to his leadership. Yet notice what he does in verses five and six. He tells them that he's coming to visit them at some point and he hopes that they will help him out on his missionary journeys, which he expects because that's what Christians do. We love each other to help the gospel go forward. Now, what's interesting is during the time of this writing of the book, Paul had already dispatched his most faithful son in the faith, Timothy, to go to Corinth. Timothy's a young buck. He's a young guy that Paul's been training in ministry. Paul knows how these people... Notice what Paul says to them about how to treat Timothy. Put him at ease. Let no one despise him and help him on his way in peace. See, Paul understands that these people are divided over leaders, they demean leaders they don't like, and they're really mean to people that they think that, that they don't want, that they want to pull down from a pedestal. Yet, here is Paul telling them, care for and encourage leaders, especially those who are doing the work of the Lord. A, a very fascinating lesson that we can learn and continue to apply is this, a church that joyfully encourages and cares for their leaders, joyfully encourage and care for the church. It's a, it's a way to protect the church from division. 
But then there's verse 12. It, it is one of the most understated verses in this chapter, yet has potentially one of the most challenging and convicting examples that we're going to read. It's where Paul tells them that he strongly urged Apollos to go visit them, but Apollos didn't want to go at that present time. He's going to do it later. Now in this verse, the third thing we see in this text is love is not jealous of others' gifts or influence. Now here's why I say this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul wrote about their division over leaders and notice the names on the list. What I mean is that you're divided when each one says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas or Peter, or I follow Christ. In that section, 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, Paul taught us that Christ is our true leader, and the fight about who's in leadership in the church and who's more gifted in the church was futile because God is the one who brings the growth. Paul might have planted, Apollos might have watered, but God brought the increase, and only Christ is worthy of our ultimate following. But historically, historically we know that if there was one leader in the New Testament era that the Corinthian people loved, it was Apollos. Apollos was a wonderful preacher. He was probably, and there's some debate about this, the best New Testament preacher next to Jesus. He had great oratory skill. And the Greeks loved somebody who had a public presence. And he was that guy. He was super influential. Now, humanly speaking, let me ask you a question. If you know that you've been demeaned by a group of people and somebody else that maybe is an associate, is honored by that group of people, do you send that think to yourself, I need these people to get it in order? You would think, humanly speaking, if Paul knew that Apollos was honored by them, and if Paul knew that he was demeaned by them, that Paul would do everything he could to kind of keep Apollos away from them. At least that's what we see in the American church. That's what we see in American companies. That's what we see in our own heart. He'd probably do this for a couple reasons, maybe, just assuming, because he wanted to prove to the Corinthians, there's only one true leader, and you're not getting Apollos even though you want him. Or on the other hand, maybe, just maybe, there might have been an inkling of jealousy in Paul's heart about Apollos' gifts or influence. At, at least being honest with you, that's what my sinful tendencies would be. How dare you demean me and honor another? Do everything to keep Apollos from going back there. But notice, that's not what Paul does. He strongly urges Apollos to go there, which shows us something about Paul, that he cared more about God's church than he did for his own influence or position in that church. And in sending Apollos there, he knew if that meant it was going to encourage this church to change, Paul was all for sending Apollos to Corinth. Gordon Fee put it like this, and if you have a quote, this is one to take. The gospel is God's thing, and God's alone, and so too, therefore, is the church. Used strenuously, belongs neither to himself, nor to Apollos, nor to them. The church belongs to God through Christ, and all of its members, including the founders, exclamation, are merely servants. So rather than being jealous of Apollos... 
Paul urges him to go to Corinth because of Paul's love for God, his love for the gospel, and his love for that particular church. That's remarkably compelling. What's also compelling is Apollos' response. You'll notice that Apollo, Apollos decided, I'm not going. Not going right now. This maybe probably indicates that Apollos was not willing to subject himself to people who would demean his own brother Paul. In other words, what he's saying is, Paul, rather than me going in, why don't we go together? Why don't we deal with this rebellious people and have them repent of their attitude toward you and their attitude toward Christ? He had Paul's back. To a church that compared their gifts, that found and fought for prestige in the church, that wanted position, they wanted to be recognized in the church, Paul gives a compelling example of how love for the church and how love for the gospel keeps Christians in unity. And it's by seeing that God, his gospel, and the church are bigger than our jealousies, our sinful comparisons, and our sinful suspicions. And this is a great lesson on love. The kind of love that protects the church is a love for God, a love for his gospel, and a love for his church. That kind of love destroys our jealousy and destroys our pride. It's the kind of love that keeps the church unified. And you can see where this would lead in verses 15 through 18, that love honors others. In that section of scripture, Paul lists a few names that are hard to pronounce, but who are faithful Christian people, particularly the household of Stephanus, who were the first Christians in that region and who were supporters of the apostle Paul. Notice what Paul says at the end of that section, give recognition to such people. These people weren't necessarily leaders in the church, but they were faithful servants in the church. They loved the church in Corinth. So you have to ask, why would these people if they were doing it well? Which indicates they weren't. These people loved the church, but the Corinthian church didn't love them back. So what's Paul's remedy for this? What does he say? Recognize them. Honor faithful people. Point them out. It reminds you of another place in the book of Romans where Paul wrote these words. The only place where we're commanded to compete against one another in the New Testament. With brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. You know what, you know what honor is, right? I, I saw an example of it this week in my sports world that I happen to watch and pay attention to when my beloved Dallas Cowboys... Don't say anything now. Keep it quiet. Okay, I already know part of the score. Don't give me that anymore. Okay? My beloved Dallas Cowboys head coach is standing at a podium doing a press conference. In their interview room, it is an all-glass building. During this particular Sunday coming up, they're going to be honoring military veterans. And in the history of the Dallas Cowboys, there has been a quarterback who was in the military. And you might know his name. His name was Roger Staubach. Well, as the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys is doing his interview, he's asked a question about something to do with the defense and offense, and he begins to answer the question. And suddenly, as he's answering the question, he just starts doing this. And he drifts off. There's Roger Staubach. And he stares. 
And he goes, what were we talking about? Honor is like, I'm in the room with that person. For me as a baseball fan, honor would be if you brought in a Honus Wagner rookie card. I would not hand that off to my 12-year-old son and say, here, go use this for kindling. I wouldn't let him touch it. I would not hardly touch it. We would be going, you would say, that's the dumbest old car I've ever seen in my life. And I'm like, well, it's worth a million dollars or more. That's honor. Honor is holding each other in our hearts with respect. Honor is being amazed that we're in the presence of one another. Do do you ever marvel that in a gathering of even this small or this size, that we are all gathered together for one reason, to honor Christ and then to bless and encourage one another? Honor A church that honors one another cannot be divided. It's Paul's point. A church that finds ways to express gratitude to God for one unity. Love honors others. Now the final compelling loving conclusion is found in verses 19 and 20. Love welcomes others with respect. Look at all the greetings in these verses. All the churches in Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla, who were founders of the church in Corinth, actually, with Paul. They greet you. All the brothers greet you. And then notice the command. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, this isn't something weird and strange or romantic or bizarre. This is like something you'd see in a, in a European country where they just peck each other on the, as a sign of affection, a sign of respect. They were greet, This greeting was one of joy. It was cultural to greet others in this way as a sign that I I recognize you. And I'm grateful that we can interact with one another. In our world, it's as simple as a handshake and a hug. That's why one of my concerns that we've had over this last two years has been we have distanced ourselves from one another and the idea of a physical handshake has been lost and just replaced by a little fist bump rather than grabbing and looking someone in the eye and saying, Hi, I'm Dave York. What's your name? And showing the respect of greeting one another. This shows a welcoming attitude to the person that you are greeting. It shows they matter. right? Maybe you've been in rooms and I love when our leaders gather together. And one one of the things that happens when our leaders gather together, as one leader enters in, out of their chair and shake their hand. I'll, I'll be around Bill often and I'll say, hey, we haven't done this formally yet, man. Let's get this right. Because I I want him to know he matters. I want my friends to know they matter. It shows something. Now, what's funny is to this church, this church ignored one another. They walked away from each other. They ghosted each other. They, They treated others with disinterest and disrespect. Now, you might say, man, I'm not that friendly, man. I just can't, I can't do that. Well, Paul would tell us in Romans chapter 15 that we have all the power we need to do this because he would say, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has well glory of God. So when I give you the challenge about being a little more friendly with one another, it's a gospel thing. It's not just be uncomfortable, I'm shy, don't do this. No, it's a gospel thing. There's enough power in the gospel to help you shake hands and greet somebody. You know why? Because Christ has welcomed you. 
Treat others in a way that Christ has treated you. It's the gospel of Christ that motivates our welcoming. And this welcoming others is a way, listen, that protects the church from division. Now, when you look at all five of these areas on your notes, aren't these great checkpoints of your love? And they're great checkpoints as well for our health. How willing are you to care for people in need? Are you willing, so willing, that you're willing to set enough aside so that in a moment it's called upon, you have it? Is part of your budget and one of your financial priorities helping people in need? How eager are you to care for and encourage leaders that are in your midst? Or do you find subtle ways to just kind of Kind of, kind of drag them down. Or even comments that you make periodically. Or do you, do you, when you think of them, do you pray for them? Does jealousy rob you of your joy when you come to church? Is your pride waiting to be recognized for your gifts that you have? Or are you just glad to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord, entrusting to God what gifts he gives to people and what role he gives to people? Are you looking for ways to honor others? Are you a ready observer of the grace of God at work in people? Are you, are you willing for their faithful service to the church? And how welcoming are you? I mean, do you come in late hoping to slip out early? When we welcome others with respect, we're doing the work of Christ. And we're revealing the work of Christ. It matters. Now you can see why I said verses 13 and 14 are the hinge to the chapter. See how it just opens the chapter up to you? When Paul said, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. It just opens everything up. Now let's finish this chapter and this time in the book with the final warning that Paul gives. You'll see this in verses 22 through 24. If anyone has no love for the Lord... Let him be accursed. Friends, the peril that the Corinthian Christians were possibly in could not be more poignant to us. Love for the Lord means that we love the Savior that he sent. That we love what God loves. We love his glory, his people, his church, his kingdom. It means that the fruit of love will be expressed in our lives in one way or another. If there is no love for the Lord, there's no Lord in the heart. Paul's point is clear. If the greatest fruit of Christ's work in our lives is love for God and love for others, we should be concerned when we see neither of them. We cannot take this lightly. We cannot just gloss over this and just move on. If we do not see love for God and love for others in our lives, we should be concerned. So do do you see expressed in your life? How is love for others being expressed? If, If you don't see it, I just encourage you, heed the warning of Paul. A person who has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed and turn to Christ. Lean to Christ. You cannot change your hateful heart or unloving heart on your own. That requires the power of God to change you. And that's why I think Paul ends the book and the way he began the book with grace. In chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul mentions the word grace twice. 
in his normal greeting, chapter, verse 3, and then in his rejoicing, seemed to be at work in them. But then notice chapter 16, verse 23. Paul says it again. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. These are bookends. Like, in other words, what Paul's saying is grace has to fill all of this. The power of God has to fill all of it. Christian love cannot be expressed without the grace of Jesus at work in our hearts. Therefore, if a person does not have the love for the Lord, they don't have the grace of the Lord in their lives. It is God's grace toward us in Christ that gives us the ability to change. Only the power of the gospel of grace can keep churches from dividing. Unifying love empowered by God's grace. Now that's where I want to I want to end. I want to end our time in the today and our time in the book. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with us. Listen, when I consider the last two years at CLF, and I consider the last several years at CLF, to be honest with you, your response in the church and how you've responded, I am reminded that it is God's grace at work in us to keep us together. Friends, listen, it, it has not been the wisdom of your leaders It's not been our intellect, you know, our striking good looks. It's not been any of that. It has not been your adaptability to change and be flexible. It's not been any political view, whether it's far left, far right, right in the middle. It has solely been about one thing, one thing, the grace of God at work. And we must posture our hearts appropriately to this. God has been at work. God has been at work by giving leaders wisdom on how to navigate through these rough times. And he's given us grace by helping you be adaptable to change. And he's given us wisdom on some things that might help in the center rather than on the fringes. Those things are helpful. But those are all activities of the grace of God. I am grateful that as a church, CLF, listen, you are an absolute joy to lead. I I do not find myself like Moses in the Old Testament going, God, why would you give me such people to lead? When I get up in the mornings and I pray for you, my heart is filled with thankfulness as well as our leaders are filled with gratitude that you are eager to care for us and encourage us. I am so, we're so grateful for that. And we're grateful that for the most part, we don't have fights over conscience issues. And we had reasons to do that this last year, did we not? And we begin to realize there's a difference between a disagreement in the intellectual plane and the relational plane. And by God's grace, God kept us from conflicts even though we could disagree in love. That's an activity of God's grace. I'm grateful that when we gather together, and if you're new here, Lord willing, you sense this, you felt it, you, you, you went, wow, something is different here, that there is a warmth there is a, there's a joy, there's a love for one another, there's a respect for each other that is palpable when we meet together. I love Sundays. I love when I see my friends, Christian friends at my church in Fred Meyer. I go to the produce aisle when they're there, not the coffee aisle, right? I mean, I don't want to avoid them. I love when I see them, I see them hanging out with their kids. There is a joy about that. That is God's grace. But, let, but listen... Let's, let's be charged. Let's be, let's be challenged by 1 Corinthians with this. Let's be watchful. 
Let's be on guard of our sinful tendencies to sinful comparison, jealousy, and sinful suspicion. This is one of my concerns with social media. It creates in you sinful comparisons. I wish I could go where they go. I wish I had what they had. Why is it when we're homeschooling or tutoring our kids at the table, they don't look that sweet? A demon entered their lives. What do we do? What is happening? And this sinful comparison in our hearts, we do it in the church. I wish I had his gifts or I wish I had her husband. It's sinful. We also do it with sinful suspicion. Sinful suspension is just simply the ability to not think charitably about somebody else's motives. That's why I've warned so many of you, you cannot judge the governor's motives. You have no idea what the president is doing. You think you do. You think you've got an idea. There's only one in the entire universe that judges motives. His name is God. The sooner you know that, the better it will be for your soul. Then when somebody does something, you don't have to say, I know why you did that. No, you don't. Only God judges the motives of the heart. Sinful suspicion is, I believe they did this because in gaining some evil intent. You know what those things do to us? They separate us. We must be on watch, on guard against those things. We must stand firm in the foundation of the gospel of grace, listen, friends, that has been laid here year after year, week after week, delivering to you what we believe the Bible says delivered to the saints. This is remarkably important to us. We must not only see the gospel as Christianity 101, that's how we get in, we must see the gospel as the, the building that everything is housed in. Every practical implication is found in the gospel. And we must, listen, be people who say, we want to grow to maturity in Christ, to be strong with the strength that God provides. Because friends, let's be honest, there's going to be a day. There will be a day when something divisive will show up, a divisive person will raise up their ugly head, and the Bible says very clearly, those moments are to happen so that those who are mature can be seen... You know why? Mature people fight off division. Let's be those people. For the good of this church. But more importantly, listen, for the glory of God. See, left, there's so much to be thankful for. When I read this book, I go, God, thank you that we are not there. And I say to myself, yet. We must be on guard. We must stand firm in the faith. We must grow to maturity. Let's pray. Right now, just do business with God where you are. Father, we need you. Oh, we need the power that only you can work in us to change us. We are helpless without the power of Christ. Forgive us for our sinful comparisons, our sinful suspicions, for our jealousies where they may lie in our hearts. Forgive us, Lord, where we have wandered from the gospel of grace and we have applied the gospel of humanism or the gospel of the world or the gospel of self 
Forgive us, Lord, where we have been immature. And I pray, Father, may the grace of the Lord Jesus continue to be with us. Lord, it's, it's not that we don't want to be like the Corinthian church. That, that isn't it. We, we just simply want to be faithful like you've asked us to be faithful. So help us to keep the gospel in mind, to keep the hope of Christ in mind. For the glory of God and the good of this church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.